Hello everyone. Welcome to Sec Tools podcast by Infosec Campus. I'm your host of the show, Sanup Thomas. Today we have a special guest, Tim Misaik with us. Um Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Tim, there are a lot more to talk about. Uh but let's start with your experience or your journey into information security. Let's figure out some nostalgic moments from the past. Oh. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um I've been in the software industry since about uh 2005-2004. Um I did a couple of internships for Microsoft and then uh and then joined Microsoft full-time uh around there. Um initially I was not really in anything related to security or low level or anything like that. Um but when I had an opportunity to join the Windbug team, uh I I realized that that was, you know, that was what I wanted to do. And so I worked on that team pretty much from when I was um a junior developer about 2 years out of college. And I spent a while on that team working on Windbug and related tools and time travel debugging. Um and then I left Microsoft. I went to VMware. I worked on the hypervisor at VMware for a couple of years. And um you know, while I was at VMware, I was writing debuggers in my spare time and I said, "Well, this is this is kind of silly. I'm I should get paid for this." And so I went back to Microsoft to work on the debugger team again. So um and then this time when I went back to Microsoft to work on Windbug, um they asked me to be the lead for the team. So I led that team for I think 6 7 years or so. Um and then just recently, just uh last month, I left Microsoft and uh started working in a startup. So that's what I'm doing now. Awesome. So you pretty much know the inside out of uh, Windybugger. Um how it was started um and what it is today. When you joined Microsoft to be part of Windybugger in the first place, what was the situations like? There wasn't like much of debuggers back then, right? I mean, there was maybe Windybugger was one of the major one um for Microsoft platforms. Like now maybe we have alternatives and and um emulations and whatnot. What was the situations back then? Yeah, so Windbug is is an interesting product because it's actually a lot older than people might realize. Um while you know Windbug and and there's the command line version of Windbug which is called CDB or KD, the kernel debugger or the console debugger. Um Windbug and and CDB, they're actually quite old. They're uh I think when I looked it up they're something like 25 30 years old. Um which is crazy, right? It's almost it's almost older than me. And so they've been around for a long time. Um and of course Microsoft has Visual Studio and there are other low-level system debuggers like things like uh, IDA, um uh, Numega Softice was one that I that I used when I was in college. Um and so um a lot of them had sort of just stayed i won't say that they'd stayed static like from a user interface perspective visual studio had made huge strides but windbug and and cdb and kd those had really cha- remained from a from a usability perspective had had remained kind of unchanged for probably a decade it had been a long time and so that was when i came onto the team i really cared about the low level side of things but i also realized that there was a lot of um potential for uh being more effective at debugging um by just in, improving the usability and improving the the experience there partly because you know a lot of the people that had been using it had been using it since it was first created and so they had been using it for you know 10 20 years and they didn't have 
they didn't see a need to make it easier to use because they knew how to use it. But of course, as the software industry is growing, as Microsoft is growing, we're bringing in new developers all the time. And it's not just Microsoft that uses Winnebug, obviously security researchers and driver developers outside of Microsoft. Um, but you know, as new people come into the industry, you know, they have to learn how to use these tools too. And, and that was, it was really unapproachable, right? Um, especially the command line version of the debuggers. Um, and so that was something that I saw. There was room for improvement on user experience for system level debuggers. Visual Studio was its own thing. And I think they've, they were doing some amazing things even when I just had just joined the Windabug team and has just been you know, incredibly successful at making a really, um, a really effective way to debug applications. Uh, Windabug has a different focus. It's more of a systems level debugger. And so it's not, um, doesn't have the same uh, ways of using it in terms of people open up a project and press F5, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a, a bit of a different way of thinking about things. And so when I, when I joined the team, that's kind of what I was thinking about. Right. Uh, I mean, I remember when back in the days, it was not so easy to use. Like when, I, when probably like a fresher to start working with WinDebugger, um, it's confusing. It, it was, it was difficult to get started with. I mean, you probably need to, the learning curve was like a peak, uh, but once you reach there, then it was smoother. Um, yeah. And that definitely changed after the rewrite happened or it makes it more easier for a user experience perspective. Yeah. And it's still, it's still a steep learning curve. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It is. <laughs> it is. It's very steep. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when, when the rewrite happened, uh, was there any feedback from the community about like, Hey, because they have used the tool for like quite a long time and yeah. people yeah. sometimes not okay with the change or some people are. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was your experience in like shifting it from the version back then to the new version? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And a tool, you know, the older a tool is, the more tools sort of remain static. I think the less people are willing to change how they use things. So one of the things I realized early on was we couldn't just get rid of the old window bug. And so they would have to coexist. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of unfortunate in a way, because now, even now, right, the old Windabug, which we would call Windabug Legacy or Windabug Classic, it still ships in the SDK. That's still the debugger that a lot of people think of as Windabug. Windabug, uh, the new version, which we would call, internally, we would call it Windabug Next. Um, outside Microsoft, it's called Windabug Preview, because um, it's in, been in beta for six, seven years, right? Um, we wanted to make sure that, first of all, that we wouldn't get rid of anything that people were already comfortable with. And we wanted to quickly get to a point where people wanted to use the new debugger, not that they felt like they were forced to use the new one. And so it, initially, you know, it was something that internally people were, were beta testing and they were starting to use it and it started out and it was not very good, but what we were able to do is, um, well, let me, let me take a step back actually. When we were looking at our options, we had the legacy window bug, which was written in C and a little bit of C++ and was using very low level UI APIs. It was very hard to iterate on the UI. It's a very legacy piece of code. It was hard to iterate on, on and make new things. And one of the new features of window bug at the time was JavaScript support for scripting. Mm -hmm. And so 
an obvious place we would like to go there is make it possible to write scripts right in the user experience for Windebug. And so we tried that and it took us a really long time and we had a really poor experience in the old code base. And right about the same time was when I was starting to prototype Windebug Next. And I was playing around with some .NET UI and I was looking at what we could do there. And I, I was not yet the lead at the time. And so I, I, I went to my lead and I said, hey, you know, lend me some, some, some other devs to help me work on this. And I had a very junior dev that was working with me. And I said, hey, see what you can do. Try to, try to make a scripting window in this new one. And he was able to turn that around in about a week and had a scripting window that was really, really useful. It was way better than the one we had on the legacy UI, just because we were on a new modern UI toolkit. And I think that was the moment that a lot of people realized, yeah, it's not going to be at parity. It's not going to be able to do everything that the old one does. Mm -hmm. But we're going to be able to find some very specific scenarios that are so good that we get people to start trying the new one. And that's where we started with it. Um, the scripting windows was kind of where things started. Mm -hmm. When you work professionally on like these kind of projects, and of course these projects are actually looked up to by security communities at scale, like globally, right? I mean, so many security researchers are actually using it, even though this is like a free tool, but it, it has its own value for sure. What drives you to make decisions on which features needs to be adopted and what was the challenging experiences within the team? Yeah, so it it's a free tool. It's always been a free tool. And so there's a little bit different way that you think about how to prioritize feature work. Um, which is kind of weird, right? Like we're not, we're never trying to make money with Win the Bug. It was always about making the platform better. Um, there were a couple of things that were going on there in terms of trying to prioritize features. One of the weird things that I quickly learned as I became the lead for the team was that no one used, no two people used Win the Bug the same way. Mm. You might think that there was one feature that everybody uses. And a lot of people would say, oh, obviously everybody uses Windebug this way. And I would say, actually, some people do, but um, you know, people that would use it for kernel debugging would just assume everybody was doing kernel debug. Mm -hmm. People that were doing security research would just assume everybody was using Windebug for security research. And so they're projecting their own uses. And so it was it's very hard to get everybody happy <laughs> when you make changes because everybody has a little bit different scenarios. And so that was the big thing, like really early on, we realized is that it's really hard to make everybody happy because there's so many different uses. Yeah. Inside Microsoft, the team was not just about the user interface. Mm -hmm. It was also about the debugging engine and the platform. And that powered a lot of infrastructure inside Microsoft, mm -hmm. automatic crash analysis and things like that. And so at the same time, we were also, um, you know, working on projects, things like Linux support and Windebug, which is still something that I think most people don't realize that Windebug supports debugging Linux crash dumps and Mac OS crash dumps and all these things. Because around that time was Azure was really starting to take off and a lot of Linux was being used there. And so it was hard, right? We had to prioritize between, you know, people that are using this tool for free, but of course it's making the ecosystem better. It's making Microsoft a better company by people coming in using Windebug. Um, and balancing that against sort of Microsoft's internal needs for infrastructure and, and, and the debugging platform. So there was always a little bit of a balance. We couldn't completely go in one direction. We couldn't completely go in another direction. Um, but at least on the UI side, we always made sure that there was a very tight feedback loop with customers. 
internally it was much easier. We would just, people would just email us and we could turn around and give them a new version of the debugger with bugs fixed or new features and things like that. Um, but that also really helped in terms of prioritization was having that close feedback loop with people and, and seeing what they were using, mm -hmm. um, stuff like that. I see. When back in the days, I think the architecture was pretty static for a very long period of time, right? Um, the the OS architecture was pretty static, um, or at least consistent. Uh, but then it got changed. Maybe 64-bit machines have started coming up more frequently. Not just that, maybe uh, ARM systems are started supporting by Microsoft machines. Did the development or the features prioritization actually change based on the architectural changes in, in, in the new platforms? Well, the biggest thing that sort of all these new architectures ended up affecting was the fact that the the OS, the kernel, all these pieces, they're all moving. Mm -hmm. And every time they, there's a new development in, um, in OS technology, Windows, you know, there's some new security feature in Windows, or there's some new, um, you know, emulation technology. So now Microsoft has has Windows, uh, you know, Intel, Intel, you know, x64 processes that are running on ARM64 and things like that. Every time there was one of these new technologies, um, it ended up requiring support in the debugger. Like every single thing, right? We would have, okay, we're going to go and do, you know, more efficient builds by inlining more functions. Well, now nobody can debug anything because your inline functions don't show up in the debugger. Now the debugger has to go and support, you know, better support inline stack frames. Um, okay, we have x64 processes running on ARM64. Okay, nobody can debug that anymore. Now we, the debugger has to be enlightened to know about how can you debug a process that has two architectures mm -hmm. in a single process, right? And so that constant innovation in the OS, we would sometimes just feel like we had to be sprinting just to stay still, mm -hmm. right? Just to make sure that the debugger still worked and and you know, from the outside, you might look at it and say, it's not moving, but we're, we're running just to stand still and try to keep things going. Uh, at least that's how it felt during, during sometimes when there would be these big investments in new architectures and new technologies and new security features and things like that. So that was the biggest thing. And so that was part of our motivation for like, we had to re-architect the debugger. It wasn't static anymore. It was moving, you know, every year things were moving faster and we had to figure out how can we change our architectures so that our UI can evolve quickly, as well as the underlying engine to support new platforms, new architectures? And that was that was a really big project over many years. Um, and I just had uh, uh, great people that were able to go and, and make that happen on our team. You know, we had some amazing people that were able to go and do that. And now, you know, it's kind of crazy looking back if people had said, you know, when I first joined the team, if somebody had said like, hey, we need Winnipeg to support Linux or we need Winnipeg to support multiple CPU architectures in one process, we've been like, that's crazy. No one, like, that would be a huge amount of work. Um, and it was, of course, right? But, you know, we took it little by little. <laughs> Interesting. Based on your development experience with uh, Debugger, um, or as a user also, what is the most favorite feature or what you felt more fun developing or designing or using? Um, yeah, so I think the things that were most fun for me to, um, to work on and develop are things you might almost not notice. Um, when we did, when we first started doing the rewrite for Winnebug, I had previously worked on integrating 
the Windebug Debugger Engine into Visual Studio. And that project died. Um, well, actually, it might still be around somewhere. You might be able to find it. Um, but I learned a lot that I, you know, that brought into the new project. And one of the things that I learned about was how high people's expectations were for the command window of Windebug, which, of course, it's the soul of Windebug. So many extensions and, and you know, really powerful functionality. It's in the command window. And so I decided that, you know, because everything that I had tried had not had, you know, the performance, had not had the features, the customiz customizations that we wanted to do on the command window, I decided that I, I would sort of start from scratch and not use any existing text control. And so the text, that command window that's in Windebug Preview, it's in Windebug Next, is um, that's all written from scratch, just trying to render as fast as possible because I know that users will throw gigabytes of text in the command window, and then they'll send me an email. Back when I was on the team, right, they would send me an email and be like, why is the debugger not working? I only sent four gigabytes of text into the command window. Said, okay, well, we can work on that. We can make that better. And so that was actually a really fun project, even though, again, looking back and I look at how much work that went into that, not sure that I would have made those same choices again, but it was really fun to go and build just that part of the experience from scratch and we ended up with a command window that was, of course, very fast and performant, as well as very customizable. And we could start adding some cool features into, into the command window about how, about how the hyperlinks work and all these things. So that was a lot of fun to work on. But again, you might not even notice it because it just, it just sort of works, right? Yeah. Um, the background say nobody knows it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You also worked on time travel debugging, right? Um, for somebody who has no clue about what the hell is it, how did you get started with that? And what, what is the whole concept about? Yeah, so time travel debugging is sort of the superpower that it feels like everybody that knows it is just shocked that more people don't know about it because it's just this amazing technology. And so to just to give you like the really short version, time travel debugging is a feature that you can use in Windebug that records the execution of a process at a very, very granular level. Every single instruction that executes in that program is recorded. And that means that because it's recorded, you can go and take that trace and debug as if the, it's a live process, but you can execute forwards and backwards. And so you can do things, you can answer questions that you could never answer with a live debugging session. Like, let's say you have a stack corruption. Well, in a normal live debugging, once your stack is corrupted, it can be very hard to figure out how that got corrupt. In a time travel debugging trace, you can set a memory access breakpoint on the exact memory location that got corrupted and then just tell it execute in reverse. And now let's find the last place where that memory was written and you can immediately find your stack corruption. And so things like that where um, extremely difficult debugging problems can be made trivial, um, as this is a longer explanation, but the, the time travel debugging just makes all of these debugging problems so much easier. And the technology that goes into that is because we're, you know, we, you have to record every single instruction, there's a CPU emulator that's part of that. Um, and so it's actually emulating the instructions in the process and recording what it needs to go back and, and replay that execution of the process. So incredibly powerful tool. Um, 
it's and it's in Winnebug Preview. You can go and you know install Winnebug Preview from the store. Um, it, it's one of the main items in the and the menu there is record a trace. Um, and so that's something that I got to work on the rewrite of that as well. There was a, a 1.0 version that was around, I'd say at this point, it was 15, 20 years ago. There were some research papers and, and um, some folks that um, did the original version of that, but it was written in assembly code. It was very hard to maintain. And so when I came in, I had a lead that said, we've got to rewrite this into C and C++ that we can actually, you know, maintain it and keep up with new CPUs that are coming out and emulate new instructions. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I did get to work on that, but that's just this amazing piece of technology that, you know, I didn't, I didn't invent it. I got to work on it though. And if you haven't tried it and anybody that's listening, if you haven't tried time travel debugging and you do any kind of windows debugging whatsoever, like stop listening to this podcast, go, go try it and then come back because it's that powerful of a tool. Yeah. If you haven't tried it, you really need to try it. Yeah, when we talk about, let's say, um, debugging or crash analysis and or exploit research, right? Um, someone who is getting started with, um, a, as we all know that Win debugger learning is pretty steep learning curve. Um, is there any specific way we need to probably start with in your experience or we can probably jump right into time travel debugging and learn right from there? Yeah, time travel debugging, you can jump in pretty much right away and because you can just do sort of like um, recording a crash, for example. If you record a crash, if you just had a crash dump of that, you've got a static snapshot. Even without knowing any of the really deep internals, you automatically get some value out of recording a time travel trace because now you can step backwards through the source code. And there's you know buttons at the top of Windabug that step backwards instead of step forwards. And so even without having that deep knowledge, um, you'll get some value out of it. But like anything else in Windebug or low-level debuggers, the most, the thing that's going to make you the most effective is not necessarily knowing the tool better, but understanding sort of those underlying concepts of like, how does the stack look like? Where, where is the stack in memory? What does memory corruption actually mean? You know, how did this crash happen? And so, you know, it's one of the things that makes it hard to do teaching things like Windabug 101 courses is that you have to sort of learn it in parallel with these underlying systems concepts. You can't just learn Windabug without knowing anything about, you know, how, you know, like you can, you can certainly use Windabug just as a normal debugger, but you're not going to get that full power unless you really understand some of those internals. And hopefully Windabug can make it easier to learn some of those things, but you can't learn either of them in isolation easily, right? You sort of have to learn both of those together. Mm -hmm. After you left Microsoft, What's going on? Yeah, so um, last month I left Microsoft, which, you know, really I didn't want to leave really. Like I, I really loved the team that I was working on, but I've been, uh, you know, I'd been talking with a friend of mine and we had an idea for a startup that we thought was going to be um, really, really cool. And so last month we left and we started raising some funding and it looks like we'll We'll be successful in raising some funding, which is pretty exciting. Um, but we are going to start working on um, how can we bring um, developer collaboration tools um, and make them augmented by artificial intelligence. So recently, of course, everybody's been very excited by ChatGPT and GPT-3, and now you know, the past couple of weeks, Bing, you know, powered by by GPT, um, and things like 
GitHub Copilot are super powerful for writing code. And like every day I'm in chat GPT, you know, learning new things by, by, you know, getting it to write some code and stuff like that. We think that using those technologies across the entire developer workflow is going to be really powerful. And we are going to start by approaching that with, um, how can you do some collaboration for like incident response? So you manage a service and service goes down. Well, today, you know, maybe you'll do some screen sharing if it's two people on the call, but at the end of the call, you know, that goes away and maybe you, maybe you recorded it, but it's hard to refer back to. We want to start making it easier to collaborate with people with, with multiple apps that you're sharing together and over time train, um, you know, large language models or other AI to start assisting you where you can an ask questions about how have you debugged this problem in the past or um, what are some possible suggested you know, steps next. And I think it's gonna be a really hard problem to tackle, but it's also something where you know, when we figure it out, it's gonna be one of those tools where you, you don't know how to live without it. You know, I look at how hard it is to learn a tool like Windebug and you can, you know, you can certainly try to read documentation, but documentation is really hard without context. And so the most powerful thing that you can do is if somebody can help you learn within the context that you're in right now, whatever you're debugging right now and give you the information that's relevant to you. And when I was teaching people how to use Windebug, the most effective thing I could do is get them to try to solve a problem and then help them through that. If I just stand up in, in front of a room and I say, here's this feature of Windebug and here's that feature of Windebug, it's not gonna be really impactful for people because they're not gonna actually learn how to use the tool. When you're using something and you're doing it for yourself, that's when you when you learn it. And it's just not scalable for somebody, you know, an expert to sit with you and, and teach you every, every little thing. And so people end up hitting their head against the wall. What I think that we can do is we can sort of capture some of that knowledge. You know, things like GPT already knows about all of the, you know, the documentation for Windebug and all these other tools that people are going to be using, but we can start capturing knowledge that's specific to your team. How do we run the test for this project? How do we deploy this to, to production? How do we, um, you know, go and use this feature of our tools? Um, and so I think that's going to be, you know, within the next couple of years, I think we're going to see a flood of just amazing tools that are built on top of large language models. Um, I think our tool is going to be the best. I'm, of course, biased, right? But I think we're, we're going to see some really cool things. Mm -hmm. And right now, we're just sort of focused on how, to, how can we take those new AI, AI models, apply them to software engineering in a, a context that you would normally be collaborating with other people. And so now you're collaborating with other people and you're collaborating with AI assistants. And that's the direction that we're going to go and, and work on. But you're still working on um, debugger research or rather like I was just surfing through your blog post and mm -hmm. earlier this month you posted something about like writing debugger from scratch. What was, what was that process going on? Like sounds interesting, but super tedious yeah, job yeah. too. <laughs> well, I, I really like teaching and this is one of those areas where I have some very specific domain knowledge that there's, you know, there's probably a dozen people that, that, that really know how the internals of the, of the debugger and everything work. Um, you know, there's a whole lot more that, that know how debuggers work generally. And so I really want to teach people how do debuggers work. And so, yeah, so the, I've got this blog post, uh, I think you're talking about the, um, let's write a debugger from scratch and I'm, I'm doing it in rust. Um, and I think some people find it really interesting that I'm using rust 
-hmm. some people are finding it interesting about how we're, um, I'm just saying, hey, let's start with the basic APIs of like, how do you access a process and, and implement a debugger? I always think it's useful to understand how things work. Um, even if you're not gonna go and write your own debugger, I think it's useful to understand how a debugger works to know how you can use it better and how you could, you know, make it more effective. Um, and so, you know, I, I think debuggers are amazing. I'm probably never going to stop with debugger research and, and, and doing tools related to debugging. Um, I'm certainly going to be thinking about how can we apply um, artificial intelligence to assist people at debugging things mm -hmm. um, better. And that's something that I've thought about for, for years and years. And I feel like now we're looking at maybe the technology is at a point where we can make something that's really going to be effective for people. So, um, you know, not that I'm working on a debugger that I think is going to compete with a wind debug or anything like that. It's mostly for educational purposes, mm -hmm. but I do think it's going to be interesting to look at some of these tools and sort of think about them from scratch and think about what does it mean for this tool to live in an AI native world? Um, how can we make our tools collaborate with AI assistants? and not just be thinking about humans. Um, and so there's gonna be entirely new paradigms that people are going to invent about how can you have tools that are not designed in this traditional way of like, you have to go and read a manual about how to use Windebug, right? Mm -hmm. The tools in five years from now, if we're not at a point where, you know, your tools are far more intuitive to use because we're using the power of large language models, then I think we would have failed. Right. And I think there's going to be a lot of people that can be trying at this. And I think we're going to see a lot of people succeeding. So, sorry, I brought it back to AI again. But again, like that's everything that I'm thinking about right now, even though I'm, I'd like to teach people, that's part of what I'm doing. But part of it is also just thinking about like, how can we teach people more effectively? How can people learn these things? And I, and I, and I teach what I know, which is debuggers. Yeah. Um, and makes total sense because uh, the, the technologies are improving and of course it should uh, help uh, developers or, or researchers in terms of how to use the tools um, rather than spending more time in learning the tool itself. Um, and, and that makes total sense. Um, speaking about the language choices, I have noticed maybe uh, in the past uh, episodes also like um, anything related to system programming, the choice of language has been rust for a lot of people. Um, what is your opinion about it? Yeah, Rust is really exciting. And I'm certainly not a Rust expert. I, I'm part of the reason I'm writing a debugger in Rust is so I can learn Rust. Mm -hmm. I think you can't really learn something unless you're actually using it in practice. Um, you know, I think Rust is something that there, you know, when I was at Microsoft, a lot of people were really excited about Rust, um, partly because I think it's made some advancements in an area that has been kind of lacking any movement forwards for a long time. Um, you know, C++ and C have sort of been king for so long in systems development. And it takes a lot to move people off of, off of something that's been, had that momentum for so long. And I think Russ has made some really interesting uh, you know, new paradigm shifts that have gotten people excited, partly just because there's there are some things that you can just do um, almost effortlessly in terms of how you can, you know, write code without having to think, you know, so hard about the correctness, because a lot of the correctness is, is you know, it's part of the language, it's enforced as part of language. Not that I think that Rust is going to be 
easier for, for people to pick up than C++. It's a hard language to pick up, but I think that people are just really excited because of how, um, you know, you know, valuable it is once you understand and what you're, you're using it um, to its fullest extent that you get a lot more value out of it than, than, than C++. But I'm still really early in, in learning of it. I was mostly, you know, aware of it in terms of like trying to support customers that wanted to use Rust and, and debug their Rust code. But I suspect that we're going to see, uh, I mean, already we're seeing like startups that are deciding, yeah, we're going to do Rust because it's going to let us write higher quality code faster. Um, and now, you know, Rust code being accepted into the Linux kernel and Microsoft is adopting Rust for numerous components inside, inside Microsoft. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of people that, that just think this is going to be, you know, Mark Rosinovich tweeted recently about how he thinks that if you're working on a new project and you can't use a garbage collected language like C Sharp or Java or, or a scripted language like Python, right? The right choice is probably Rust. And I think he's right. Um, for a lot of cases, that's just going to be the right choice. So uh, anybody that's doing systems work right now and, and is looking towards new systems and not just legacy systems, that's the place to spend some time and, and understand. Even if you don't get to use Rust in a project, understanding why it's important, I think, is is really, really valuable. And for someone who wanted to get uh, started with WinDebugger learning, where should they get started with? Like, what's the resources they should go for? Of course, Microsoft has an amazing documentations and WinDebugger has its own website with all the cheat sheets and whatnot. Uh, what is your um, references or advices for people who wanted to get started with uh, WinDebugger or learning debugging in general? Yeah. So there's just so many different things that people might want to use a debugger for that it's hard to say that there's any one place to start. I think there's two main sets of people though. There's people that are writing code and are using WinDebug on their own code. And then there are people that are using WinDebug more from a you know reverse engineering or analysis perspective. And you know, people that are using WinDebug on their own code, it's gonna be so dependent on sort of what types of things that they're creating. But from a reverse engineering and analysis perspective, um, if you're coming from it you know, somewhat fresh, if you're trying to just gain some experience in the space, the, in my opinion, the place to start is find something that you think is interesting and figure out how to tear it apart. And when I say tear it apart, I mean, you know, think about different ways that you can um, poke at a program, maybe get it to do something that it wasn't intended to do, or figure out one aspect of how that program, you know, processes user input or processes file input, right? And that's going to require understanding, like, how do you go and start um, finding a little anchor point in that program, mm -hmm. right? And so for me, the way that I approach a lot of these things is like, I say like, oh, hey, there's a program that does, um, you know, let's say it shows up a, a, a dialog box, a message box, and I want to understand how, why is it coming up? You know, what's the code that's doing that? Well, you've got to go and you've got to figure out what's the API that it's calling and start exploring there. And so you start with a little anchor point and you sort of sort of exploring out from there and try to figure out how to, how to change behaviors of programs, you know, and, and things like um, detours is a really useful uh, learning tool. So there's this tool called detours, which allows you to um, change the behavior of different API calls. 
And so this is something that I did when I was first learning, you know, systems development and with a bug, I said, there was a game that a friend of mine played and they had some high score. And I said, well, I want to, I want to beat your high score by cheating. So I said, okay, let me figure out how, how does this game work? And I figured out, okay, it's, it's a timed game. This is how it goes in queries of timers. Let me go write something that's going to change the behavior of these system APIs. So the time tracking change so that I, now I have like more time to do my moves. I'm going to get a high score. And I told my friend that I was cheating. Of course, I didn't, I didn't trick them for, for too long, but it was fun. But the thing is like, you find something that you're interested in and you figure out how to poke at it and change behavior and sort of understand how things work. But it's got to be something that you're interested in because if you're just sort of like analyzing things and try to, you know, in a complete void for no specific reason, you'll just be kind of lost and you're not going to be, you're not going to find things interesting enough that you're going to be learning, right? And so you got to find something that you're interested in and you want to get to that level of understanding. Um, and that that's always been motivating for me is like find something that you want to tear apart and figure out how it works. Before we wind up, what is your piece of advice for people who wanted to get into tech for today? Like maybe a fresh graduates or uh, people who are getting started with technologies um, as a career. Um, back in the days, maybe, um, I don't say it's easier, but the tech was not changing too fast as compared to today. Um, it's fluctuating way too much faster than probably when I started uh, getting into securities or tech in general. And how do you keep yourself curious and keep up with the pace in today's world and going forward with all the AIs coming in, new technologies are adopting AI and even new architectures coming in? How do you keep up? That's a really tough one. And my advice six months ago or 12 months ago would be entirely almost irrelevant maybe now. Um, obviously, everybody needs to understand, you know, at least no one's going to figure it out, right, where AI is going and things like that. But I think everybody that's trying to get into the space has to be somewhat aware of it. But I think more importantly than trying to figure out, like, how does this AI work? You know, we don't need tons of people that know that necessarily. We need people that are starting to think about how can we apply this, you know, to create interesting things on top of that. Um, but I think more important even than that is look at all the tools that are coming out, things like GPT, chat GPT and stuff like that. And think about how you can use these for your own learning. We're always going to need people that understand some of these low level concepts. I do think that a lot of things would be more efficient because of what AI, but we're going to need people to have very deep knowledge, you know? And so it's really hard to say right now what, what my advice would be, but I think that if you're coming into the software industry now, you got to find something that you're excited in, but also try to find something that you can really go deep and really understand deeply. Because I think that's going to be where we're going to continue to have a need is for people to have deep knowledge in specific areas. Things like, you know, what I think is going to, happen over the next couple of years with, with the new AI tools and chat GPT and stuff like that, is that a lot of skills that used to be um, valuable for software engineers to have are going to be things that are going to be more and more automated. And we've always seen this where sort of the shallow skills, maybe people that were writing you know programs to do things, now all of a sudden you can automate that in Excel. And then people that were writing, you know, connecting a whole bunch of things together, now you have you know, power automate and, and, and all these tools that can sort of plug and play things and, and connect them together. And we keep building these higher level abstractions, but I think that's going to accelerate with things with, with, with new AI tools where 
skills that were previously useful in terms of like designing websites and and knowing you know very shallow things and, and broad knowledge i think those things are going to start being accelerated so much by ai that that's what's going to be the most valuable is the people that have that really deep knowledge in areas and it's hard to tell the future but you know find something that's exciting for you and go deep in that area i think is the most valuable thing that you can do awesome thanks team i think it was amazing talking to you um and great to know about some inside scoops of uh windpg for sure uh and it's always fun to actually talk to tool authors or the people who have actually worked and maintained tools for quite some times and and understand how it works and what what drives them um and get inspired with um so really appreciate your time with this yeah you're welcome and thanks for having me great thanks everyone for listening to the podcast see you in the next one